life uh, and ministry of the prophet Elijah. So please turn to 2 Kings 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep it quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. And then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before, before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked me a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father! the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed... He said, Send. And they sent, therefore, fifty men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And he said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. 
So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. And he went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we prepare to look at this text together, think of the words of the great Puritan John Owen who said that if you don't give us your Holy Spirit, we might as well burn our Bibles. And Lord, um, there's a lot of truth to that statement. Because if you do not give your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to see and to understand, if you do not give your Holy Spirit to empower us to apply and uh, to take hold of the Scriptures, uh, Lord, there's no hope for us. Because we'll remain blind, we'll remain stuck. And so what I pray for us now is that your Holy Spirit would be present here in us as believers, as you've promised uh, that you uh, would be. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be ministering to those who do not yet believe so that they might come to believe and worship you, the living God, with us. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was winter, and uh, Johannes Voss, the son of uh, the great theologian Gerhardus Voss, was walking down the street in Princeton, New Jersey, where his father uh, taught. Johannes uh, was a teenager at the time, and he noticed a man uh, walking toward him. Uh, He was bundled up in a winter coat. Uh, He uh, had a fedora uh, stuffed on his head, a scarf uh, wrapped around him. And the man was walking past uh, Johannes' house, when suddenly and without warning, the man began desperately clutching at his chest and he fell to the ground. And so Johannes ran into the house and uh, looked for his mother, Catherine, uh, so that they could call for help. And an ambulance came uh, and they uh, took the man, uh, but it would not save him. A heart attack had killed Dr. B.B. Warfield professor of systematic theology at Princeton, and one of the great uh, proponents of Christian orthodoxy in the 20th century. Warfield's influence was uh, widely felt. His influence for truth was substantial. Warfield had uh, written a number of books that were very important in terms of uh, holding up and defending uh, the inspiration of the Bible and its authority. He had written on the doctrine of Christ, who Jesus is, and what he had done defending it against modernists and other uh, enemies of the gospel. And so it was for good reason that Warfield uh, had gotten the nickname as a defender of the faith, the Lion of Princeton. And Warfield's death was grieved by many in the church, including his colleague at Princeton, J. Gresham Machen. In a letter to his mother, Machen wrote, The great loss which we have just sustained in the death of Dr. Warfield is substantial. Princeton will seem to be a very insipid place without him. 
He was a really great man. There's no one living in the church capable of occupying one quarter of his place. Machen was still grieving Warfield's death a few days later when he wrote to his mother. Dr. Warfield's funeral took place yesterday afternoon, and it seemed to me that the old Princeton, a great institution it was, died when Dr. Warfield was carried out of the church. Nearly everything that I have done has been done with the inspiring hope that Dr. Warfield would think well of it. I feel very blank without him. He was the greatest man I have known. So with the death of B.B. Warfield in 1921, it seemed that the lines defending truth had sustained a significant casualty. But as great a blow as the loss of Warfield may have been, Warfield would be the first to tell you it was nothing compared to the loss that Israel would have felt, the godly in Israel would have felt, at the loss of Elijah. Now James uh, chapter 5 tells us that Elijah was a man uh, with a nature like ours. He had weaknesses and sins. We've seen in our study of Elijah how uh, he would grow tired and weary Uh, how he would at times despair and grow angry. Uh, Elijah was not some super spiritual alien entirely different from us, but Elijah was just a man. And yet, while a man, Elijah was a man beset with, uh, or he was a great man. Uh, He was a man uh, who uh, had great courage as he faced the murderous Ahab and Jezebel. He was a man of great faith, as seen in his ministry of fervent prayer. He was a man who had been a conduit for God's great miracles in Israel, as he provided food for the widow at Zarephath, as he raised her son to life again, as he sent fire from heaven on multiple occasions. Elijah was the great defender in Israel of Yahweh worship in his day. And so while idolatry was spilling and oozing into the the kingdom of Israel from its leaders and from the surrounding nations, Elijah was the man of God who was holding the line. And what's more, from our passage today, we can see that Elijah also exercised an influence as something like a seminary professor. In verses 3 and 5, we we, uh, read about the sons of the prophets, these uh, disciples or, or prophets in training. And it's reasonable to think that Elijah exercised some ministry to these uh, men, uh, acting as a spiritual father of sorts to them. And so given Elijah's influence, our passage is a significant moment in the life of Israel because it tells us of Elijah's translation into glory. Elijah doesn't die, but he's miraculously transported into heaven. And so the question Uh, that the passage raises is, what happens now? Maybe you've uh, asked this question before. Uh, What happens when when we lose a great man or great woman uh, of God, a spiritual giant, someone who has been used for great uh, uh, spiritual good in the lives of God's people? What happens when a beloved pastor retires or passes away? What happens when a parent or a spouse or a friend is is suddenly removed from us, either by death or some other circumstances? What confidence do we now have for the future when we lose 
such giants. Well, the people to whom uh, the book of Kings was first addressed were hard-pressed. These were the people of God in exile. They faced uh, pagan opposition. They faced uh, pagan influence on all sides. And they had no mighty Elijah in their midst. And you might imagine them thinking, we could sure use an Elijah right now because being a a faithful, God-fearing person in, in exile, it's not easy. And here's what God says to his people who are in search of of his presence and his protection and his power. He says, take heart because my power is not bound up in, it's not limited by uh, uh, my, my servants, by my people. God says, I'm not dependent upon Elijah's to carry out my purposes for you. The Elijah's of the world are dependent on me. So here's what what you, as the people of God, need to see from this passage. That as Elijah goes up in God's power, and as Elisha goes out in God's power, the God of Israel, the God who's the true, the living God, he won't forsake his people, but he gives his spirit to his people so that his word will continue to go out and his purposes will still be accomplished. And since that's the case, since God's power and his presence isn't bound up in any particular man, but his power and presence are experienced by his spirit, it means that our life together and our mission as the people of God, it doesn't hang on any man or any woman, but it depends upon the power and presence of the spirit of God at work in us and at work through us. So in short, This passage is meant to bolster the confidence of the people of God by taking our eyes off the servants of God and placing them upon the Spirit of God. So let's look more closely at our passage then. Verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up uh, to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. There's no hiding here what's about to take place. But there is, we should understand, a sort of mounting anticipation about Elijah's dreaded departure. And I say dreaded not because I think Elijah dreaded uh, his departure in any way. I think he anticipated it. But it was dreaded by the church. This was a day that God-fearing people like Elisha, they wanted to put off indefinitely. And one of the three things in our passage that that sort of builds our anticipation or our expectation for Elijah's departure is a pattern of repetition that the author uses. You probably picked that up three times in verses 2, 4, and 6. Elijah tells Elisha that he should stay behind and that Elijah's just going to go on ahead without him. But Elisha, he's a committed disciple. He's a committed follower. He's not going to leave his his master, allow him to go ahead, and so he carries on. But in the first of these two instances, we have these sons of the prophets who come up to Elisha and say, you know Elijah's going to leave? And he's like, be quiet, I don't want to talk about it. And they press on, right? The goodbye is going to happen. And we're also prepared for the departure by geography, Maybe you picked that up as well, that in this passage, there's clear, definite geographical markers that the author gives us. The most important of these is the fact that Elijah and Elisha cross over the Jordan River. This was, they cross over the Jordan River to the east of the Jordan to the place where Moses, the great prophet in the history of Israel, where he had been taken from Israel. And you can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 34. 
And Moses was succeeded as the spiritual leader in Israel by Joshua. And and in Deuteronomy 34, we read how Moses lays his hands on Joshua so that Joshua would be filled with God's Spirit. Joshua, as Moses' successor, would then lead God's people across the Jordan and into the Promised Land. So when we read in our passage that they cross over the Jordan together to the east side, it's a clue that we're supposed to connect in our minds the leadership transfer that happens between Moses and Joshua And we're supposed to be teed up to expect that the baton of spiritual leadership in Israel, it's about to be handed off again. The third way our story builds this anticipation for Elijah's departure is by Elisha's request. After crossing the Jordan, Elijah says to Elisha, I'm about to go, what can I do for you? To which Elisha responds in a way that might seem strange to us. He says, give me a double portion of your spirit. That's inheritance language. I was talking with someone yesterday about about the sermon. They asked, what on earth is this double portion? Isn't that sort of a a gutsy thing, an ambitious thing to ask? Well, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, uh, we we see there in Israel, the double portion belonged to the uh, firstborn son. It was their, their inheritance. And so, What Elijah asks for here, it seems to be that he's asking that that, uh, he wants to step in as Elisha's heir, uh, but not just to inherit the the role or office of prophet, which we uh, have come to expect in our story, but he also wants to inherit the spiritual power that allowed Elijah to fill that office. Elisha will get this, Elijah says, if he sees Elijah being taken from him. So all of this, the repetition, the journey beyond the Jordan, uh, the request from Elijah, these are meant for us to begin to feel, okay, this, this is it. All right, the mantle of spiritual leadership, it's about to be passed uh, in Israel. Elijah, this lion uh, for true religion in Israel, he's a par- uh, about to go And so this is the dreaded departure. And when Elijah and Elisha leave the 50 sons of the prophets, they cross over the Jordan, it sets up one of the most vivid, one of the most miraculous scenes in the Bible. Children, maybe you remember it from reading through your kids' Bibles together. Elijah and Elisha are having a what would be an interesting conversation, I'm sure, uh, when all of a sudden they hear this roar of these these fiery chariots and horses uh, landing from heaven, and there uh, uh, Elijah and Elisha are separated, and suddenly this whirlwind, not the chariots of fire, but this whirlwind takes Elijah up uh, into heaven. Now, one of the questions that I want to ask about this is why, why the fanfare? Why the chariots of fire? There's only one other person in Scripture, Enoch in the book of Genesis, uh, who doesn't experience death. So you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you've got Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, all men who trusted in the Lord, loved the Lord, and who were loved by the Lord. And not one of them avoid death. Why does Elijah join Enoch in not dying? 
And why, why is Elijah transported up by chariots of, of fire uh, and brought up in this whirlwind of all things? Well, God chose to take Elijah in the whirlwind, avoiding death, because this vindicated Elijah's ministry and it established Elisha's ministry. Or maybe we can put it a, a better way. We can say uh, God chose to do it this way so that it would be clear that Elijah's God was the true and living and only God and that this God now went with Elijah or with Elisha. So let's unpack these, these two ideas. God chose this manner of Elijah departing very specifically to vindicate Elijah's ministry, to show that he was the true and living God. Think of Elijah's ministry. His entire prophetic career was spent saying that Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's the true, he's the living God, uh, and, and he was speaking out against the infestation of Baal worship in Israel. And Baal, as I've said before, he was one of the so-called gods of the surrounding nations. He was thought to be the god of fertility, the god of, of life, because Baal was the storm god. He was the god who sent the rains and caused, uh, that caused the crops to grow, and, and so he allowed life to happen. And, and so Baal, as the storm god, uh, was said, as we uh, have in some ancient texts bearing witness to this, he was supposed to be the life-giving god who rode on the clouds. Elijah's entire prophetic ministry was spent telling the people, Yahweh is true, Baal's a sham. He, he said, you can't trust Baal to, to give you anything. He's a fraud. And so to think that this is the way that Elijah goes, it's not just here's an interesting miracle that's happening, but this is a fantastic exclamation mark on Elijah's ministry that just underscores that what he said, uh, it was all true. That Yahweh is the one who rides on the clouds and he's the one who can deliver his people from death as he snatches his servant uh, from uh, the whirlwind. Elijah's departure, though, was also required because it was the answer to Elisha's request to be empowered by uh, the spirit that helped Elijah. And so, uh, though Elijah couldn't give the spirit in uh, his own power, he said, if you see me go, you'll have this, this request granted. And so when we see in verse 12 that Elisha saw it, this departure, it means that the handoff really happened. God was giving a visual assurance to Elisha uh, that Elisha was his spokesperson, that he, the Lord, would go with Elisha as his prophet. He would give him power. But Elisha's response to this ascension reminds us of how big a loss that this was for the people of God. Because when Elijah is taken up, Elisha cries out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And there he's referring to Elijah. Elijah was like the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He was, as one commentary put it, Elijah was like a one-man army uh, in Israel for godly religion. And now he's gone. So Elisha tears his clothes in grief. He steps uh, up to the Jordan and he asks the critical question. Where is the Lord? Where's the, the God of Elijah? 
And we got to know, is he still present with Elisha? Is he still present with Israel? Well, Elisha's grief and the question that he asks here on the banks of the Jordan River, this sets up the rest of our chapter and it sets up a dynamic ministry of Elisha in Israel. And so the three miracles that we see Elisha perform uh, from verse 14 to the the end of the chapter uh, as he retraces Elijah's steps, these are meant to answer the question, where is the Lord? Where is the God of Israel? And the answer is that though Elijah is gone, he's been taken up, God is still with his people by his spirit who's now working through Elisha. The instrument has been put away, but the master craftsman is still at his bench working. And he's not dependent upon his instruments. That's the point. So Elisha's first miracle, it's it's the duplication of uh, Elijah's last miracle. It's the parting of of the Jordan. He takes up Elijah's mantle uh, and and at his request, the Jordan uh, parts. And it's clear that his request has been granted. Then, after these sons of the prophets, not quite ready to let go of Elijah, carry out this futile search, Elisha's confronted with a problem in Jericho. The water's cursed. Uh, there's, it's causing sickness and death, apparently. And it may be that this curse was part of the curse that came uh, for rebuilding Jericho, uh, which happened during the time of Ahab. You can read about that in 1 Kings 16. Here, though, God, through Elisha, miraculously cures this spring. And what he's, he's doing here is he's, he's showing, uh, uh, it's an act of grace, and he's showing that, that God is still at work carrying out his purposes of grace in Israel. Elijah's gone, but the Spirit, through Elijah, is at work to carry out God's purposes of divine grace and of healing and of restoration And still retracing uh, Elijah's steps, Elisha comes to Bethel. Bethel, just like Jericho, uh, was a place that had come to sort of embody uh, Israel's rebellion against the Lord. It had been a center for idolatry in Israel. Uh, There's a golden calf set up uh, there uh, so that the people could turn this into a place of worship. And here we've got this strange and frightful story of these two she-bears, Okay, you can uh, imagine that this is the type of story that Jewish mothers and maybe balding Jewish fathers would use to scare their children into compliance. Right, remember the she-bears. But such shallow applications miss the point. Here's Elisha. He's walking in Elijah's footsteps. He's filling uh, Elijah's Uh, shoes in the office of prophet. He's anointed now with the same spirit of God that had animated Elijah's ministry. Uh, And he's now the living embodiment of God's word among uh, the people. And so when these, this large pack of boys, when they come out of the city intentionally to mock God's spokesman, this wasn't just a case of boys being boys uh, or uh, harmless teasing. The children, likely a reflection of the adults in the the city, are jeering at the mouthpiece of God. And so Elisha curses uh, these hoodlums, not because he's personally offended, he's thin-skinned, it's because uh, the cause of God is being mocked in Israel. 
And so as terrifying as this is to us, these rampaging bears are meant as a sign of God's judgment upon all those who would reject God and mock God in Israel. And so we see God at work by his spirit in Jericho for purposes of grace. And now when we come to Bethel, we see that God is still at work by his spirit through his prophet exercising a ministry of judgment. So God's grace and God's just judgments, these were the two notes of Elijah's ministry. These are still being sounded now through Elisha as he's empowered by the Spirit. And the reason, I think, God placed this story here is because he wants his dearly loved people to find hope in this. That the salvation purposes of the true and living God, they're not dependent upon human instruments. But his purposes are dependent upon his spirit's power at work in us and through us. Now, exiles in pagan Babylon, uh, they didn't have a dead, raising, fire dropping Elijah in their midst. Okay? They, they uh, didn't have someone uh, who could carry out this sort of bold, vivid uh, uh, ministry. But they didn't need that. What the Jews needed in exile and what they needed when they returned home was not another Elijah or even another Elisha. What they needed, our passage tells us, was God. They needed the Spirit of God to be at work by His power. And if the people of God had that, they would have all that they needed. Harvest, I think that this is a much-needed word for us today. Peter, in his epistle, identifies the church as spiritual exiles. Right? Our citizenship is in heaven, uh, uh, but we live now in a world that is flooded by uh, idols and people who are hostile to Jesus and, and hostile to those who uh, want to obey the whole life obedience that Jesus calls us to. Right? And we're beginning to feel the, the pressure uh, of our exile status in ways that the church in this part of the world uh, has, has not felt it before. So we might be thinking, wouldn't it be nice to have an Elijah around? But that's where this is an important word of challenge, but also a word of comfort to us. I think that's because the American church has a, a penchant for uh, celebrity worship. What I mean by that is we tend to be uh, fascinated by the big names, uh, by the headliners. Uh, we determine uh, perhaps just uh, subconsciously that a book or an event uh, will have value because this person will be there or that person uh, has endorsed it. Uh, maybe on a more local level, it can express itself in a number of different ways. One uh, possible way that this rears its head um, maybe begins on a sunny Sunday uh, afternoon. You're sitting on your patio, uh, you're relaxed, and someone says, it's 5 o'clock or 5.15. Uh, it's time for church. Are we going? And then you ask the question, well, who's preaching? Now, this question, sometimes it's just an innocent question, but sometimes the question is part of this calculation of whether going to church will be worthwhile, as if some man could actually make church worthwhile in the way that counts. 
Now, I, I use this example uh, not to scold you uh, or anything like that, uh, but because I suspect that some of you, perhaps many of you, have asked this question or maybe thought it. And it's a wrong-headed question, but I need to admit uh, that it's a question that I've asked myself, okay? Never when I've been preaching. But the dialogue that sort of goes on in our, our um, head there, just in that moment, I just want to use that to illustrate that we have our own mini celebrity culture, our, our dependence upon God's instruments. And so it's not surprising that when the church finds the difficulties of exile mounting, that we take comfort in the exceptional uh, leader, the charismatic preacher. And all I'm trying to do is to draw our attention to this tendency to, to say that we tend to place great importance on the guy. And I'm saying this as the guy who has a t-shirt with a dead Dutch theologian on it. Okay, I like guys. And before I go any further, I, I want to qualify what I'm saying. There are leaders who are ex exceptionally gifted by God and who are faithful stewards of the gifts that God has given. And it is appropriate to give thanks for such people and to seek whatever spiritual benefit we can get from them, to pray for them, to express our gratitude uh, uh, to them. These people deserve our prayers. So I'm not saying uh, influence or notoriety or giftedness is wrong. I'm also not saying that we shouldn't be diligent about having leaders in the church who are both qualified and competent. I think that we should exercise great care and discrimination as we're able when we choose uh, who fills our pulpits and, and who leads our groups, right? We don't simply want warm, well-intentioned bodies, but we want people who are competent and tested workmen, right? The church needs to exercise this sort of care and discretion when appointing leaders and teachers, but with those qualifiers in mind, it seems to me that our tendency to err is to place our dependence upon the instruments which God works through and not upon the God who works through these instruments. And our story corrects us at this point by showing us that Elijah's God is the true and living God and that he's not dependent on any particular servant to accomplish his purposes. It's not the presence of Elijah that made a difference at the end of the day, but the presence of God's Spirit on Elijah and then on Elisha. So 2 Kings 2 draws us as a church to a better confidence than the extraordinary ministry of extraordinary men. It calls us to place our hope in God, an extraordinary God and his extraordinary power as he works through weak men. But you say, Elijah passes the mantle on to Elisha, who appears to be a pretty impressive man in his own right. Isn't this just a case of uh, um, going from one superstar uh, to another, like uh, having Drew Bledsoe as an all-star quarterback and then going to Tom Brady as a Hall of Fame quarterback? All right, maybe the assurance is just that God will give us uh, mighty servants that the church needs. Well, no. I think that this story is meant to give us a better confidence than that because the story points us to the other great ascension story in the Bible. And there aren't too many of them. Elijah's life 
But this story in particular foreshadowed the coming of a greater prophet. Elijah's life in in many ways, uh, while it's also also an anticipation of John the Baptist, he's also an, an anticipation of Jesus' life. Jesus, as the prophet par excellence, he's baptized by the Holy Spirit and Jesus exercises his ministry dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit so that he teaches with authority and performs miracles that just astound those who are watching. But Jesus, the scripture tells us, isn't merely a prophet, of course. He's God in the flesh. He shows this Uh, supremely that he's the God who is the Lord of life when he raises from the dead three days after his crucifixion. And so maybe the disciples were wondering, how can it get any better? But they know that Jesus has told his followers that he's going to leave. He won't be with them always bodily, at least. And so in the presence of his disciples, Like Elijah in the presence of his disciple, Jesus ascends into heaven. And if the disciples weren't speechless in that moment, well might they have said, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. There he goes. Where is the Lord? But just like in our story, God doesn't merely vindicate the death-defeating ministry of Jesus by his ascension. He also gives the same spirit who had rested upon him and empowered him for ministry. He gives it to his he gives him to his followers. At Pentecost in Acts 2, right after the scene we read earlier in the service, it's a scene filled with wind and fire and the followers of Jesus there are filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised they would be. Why? So that the disciples might be now his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And they might continue Jesus' ministry of making the true and living God known among the world. That his followers would be these prophets of God, declaring him in the world as the only life-giving God. The God to whom all people owe their deepest loyalties. And that spirit who fills that band of disciples and propels them to be God's spokesman in the world is not just concentrated in one person as we see in the Elijah-Elisha handoff. But the Holy Spirit is given to all who believe. And while the gifts of the Spirit are not uh, uh, distributed in equal measure to all people, all those who are joined to Jesus by saving faith have the Holy Spirit of Christ in us to empower us. As exiles, uh, pressed uh, from outside of us by the idols of our age, tempted by the idols uh, and idolatrous tendencies of our own heart, it's understandable that we would look for mighty Elijahs, right? The enemy of our souls, uh, he is strong, powerful, cunning, unrelenting, right? We need all the help we can get. And again, it's a good thing to pray that God would raise up extraordinarily gifted men of integrity and courage and zeal and love for Jesus. Might God send us Calvins and and Whitfields and Spurgeons for our own day? But what the people of God need, what you and I in our exile need most fundamentally is not more great men, but we need more of God. 
And the good news is that when Christ goes up into heaven, he sends his spirit down from heaven so that all who truly believe in him will have exactly that, that you and I would have God. For to be a Christian means that by faith in Jesus, we now have the Holy Spirit living in us, empowering us, that we might be kept in the faith for him and we might be empowered for faithful ministry in his name. Oh, we live out our exile. We're empowered to stand firm, but we're also empowered to speak up like Elijah to our age and say, there is only one true living God. And you must flee the judgment your idolatry deserves. And you must run into his abundant grace and mercy by running to Jesus. Might we pray for mighty Elijahs? Yes. Should we pray for mighty Elijahs? Yes. Should we give thanks when God gives such men? Yes. But then we should also pray that the Lord would have us set our hopes not on his servants, but on his spirit. And more importantly still, we should pray that his spirit who has been poured out on the church on all his people would fill us in increasing measure so that we might be faithful to him and faithful for him in the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as uh, exiles living in the world, we give thanks to you that it is by your power that we are being guarded through faith for salvation, which will be revealed at the day of Christ. And we thank you that we are given, uh, we are kept not by some impersonal power, but we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your ministry in us, that we would come to Jesus, be kept in Jesus that we might minister uh, in Jesus' name to our world. We pray, O Lord, that you would have us set our hope and our dependence more fully upon your Spirit's power who you have given to us and promised to give to us in increasing measure. Lord, that you would uh, take our dependence from off of men and you would help us to see that we have a far greater assurance and the ministry of your spirit. We pray this humbly and with thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.